Good to see everybody. Uh, it's fun to be back. The last time I was here, I was here only in, uh, in spirit and virtually. Uh, I preached from um, an office space, uh, so it's great to actually get to see faces and be here present with you this morning. Um, it's such an honor to get to be in this space. Ryan and I go all the way back to seminary, and um, it's fun to get to jump in here and be a part of what God's doing at St. Paul's. Um, and just what a beautiful scene for a church service this morning. Um, as we were praying before the service, I was just thinking of Psalm 19, where in the beginning of the psalm, it talks about the revelation of God that comes just through being in creation and all that God has created. Um, and, uh, and then the revelation that comes through his word uh, that we can know him more fully and more completely. So that's my prayer for this morning, is that we would get to um, know God more through just being in his presence and diving into his word to know his heart. So as Ryan said, my name is Mike DiStefano, and I'm the director of Regional Impact for AMIRA. Uh, we are a trauma-informed nonprofit organization that works with local and federal law enforcement to ensure that women have a, a way of escape or exit from the life of human trafficking. So we're a, an organization that was formed uh, in around 2008, 2009 by a member of the FBI uh, in his church as an opportunity to bring more hope to more women. Uh, it's been an incredible journey to get to be not only a volunteer with Amira when I was in seminary, but now uh, helping to expand their model into the state of Connecticut. So I have kind of a crazy job. Uh, it is not um, a normal sort of nine to five, but I studied business and entrepreneurship in college, and then I studied ministry in graduate school, and so this is the perfect avenue that God has given me to get to make an impact on his kingdom, and I'm so honored to get to be here in this space because St. Paul's, whether you knew this or not, is a partner with Amira. Um, you officially sponsored our Hope 2020 campaign that we had last week, uh, and so I want to say a huge thank you to you because we had a goal of raising $100,000 in one day, uh, which is a pretty big number, uh, sort of a God-sized number for one day. And uh, in order to start a safe home, and uh, you probably, uh, I don't know if you've ever started a safe home before, um, but to start a safe home, you really need three things. You need relationships uh, with law enforcement, uh, you need expertise and you need cash, uh, enough money to provide the expertise uh, and the healing care to the women who need it. And so we had the first two and we really just needed the last uh, bit of money so that we could open the home. So um, we had this campaign where we called it Hope 2020, where we were taking people through the journey of what does it look like for someone to have gone from um, trafficked to free, uh, from exploitation to liberation, and we just sort of told stories of hope. Uh, and throughout the day, we raised money to help women to launch the very first safe home in the state of Connecticut. And uh, we didn't raise $100,000. We ended up raising $110,000 in just one day. And so praise God for that. Uh, and that is the final bit of funding that we need. And so, um, so thank you for being a sponsor. Uh, St. Paul's is officially a sponsor. So if you go on our website or Instagram, you'll see your church logo, which I think is just a leaf. Uh, so, um, but with a link to your church, and so your church was a part of something incredible. So I don't know how the rest of your 2020 was going, um, but one thing that you did in 2020 that was amazing is you launched a safe home for survivors of human trafficking, and that's pretty incredible. So thank you for being a part of that as a church. Uh, and so with that, I want to jump in this morning. So um, I mentioned, yeah, I work for a safe home, and we, are, we offer trauma-informed care. Uh, so we work with uh, healthcare professionals in the mental health care field to provide trauma care to women uh, who have come through a level of PTSD uh, that really is only known 
outside of the world of human trafficking in the world of uh, modern warfare, uh, that some of the effects on these women and their brains and their sort of daily function uh, just needs this expert level of care. And so we work a lot in the field of mental health. So I'm sort of dialed into that personally. And it was fascinating for me to sort of jump into these issues that our culture is dealing with, not just victims of human trafficking, but our culture in general. Uh, I read um, the Medical News Journal, and they said that anxiety seems to be rampaging through our nation like a contagious uh, cognitive plague, forming a low-level hum somewhere in the collective recesses of our minds. So it's a, they said anxiety seems to be rampaging through our society like a plague, collectively hiding in the recesses of our minds. And what was so fascinating to me about that statement is that was written before the global pandemic. And there's so much in the issues of the world that we're living in today that's causing this increase in anxiety, depression, loneliness, things like that. And many of you know that and feel that. Um, but the reality is the plague didn't create this, these issues of anxiety. Uh, we were already there. So in 2017, uh, booksellers nationally noticed a 25% increase in sales of um, publications related to dealing with anxiety, that we live in an already anxious nation. And then when the plague came in 2020, um, the Surgeon General estimates that one in three Americans are dealing with a clinical level of anxiety. So not just feeling anxious, not just feeling a little bit nervous, but clinically diagnosable anxiety, one in three people. So if you come from a family of three, statistically, somebody in your family is dealing with this on a very sharp level. 30% uh, of this congregation, 30% of our nation, and all of us, I think at some level, are dealing with anxiety. And so I want to talk about that this morning uh, because um, I think it matters. And I think what's interesting is our Bible speaks to this. And we can read passages like Psalm 46 this morning and say we will have no fear that the earth gives way and um, uh, the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. And that can either be just a nice bit of language and something comforting to hear on a Sunday morning, or it can be real power in our lives. And, uh, and I want to look into what does the Bible have to say about anxiety? Because Paul spoke to this issue, the Apostle Paul, and he says, be anxious for nothing, right? And Jesus, our Lord, will speak to this and he'll say, um, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat or what you drink or what you wear, right? And, uh, and that can sound like if you were to walk up to a, a blind person or somebody dealing with a disability and saying, hey, don't be blind. And you're like, well, thanks, right? Like there's not a whole lot I can do about that, right? And for so many of us, when we hear commands like, do not be anxious, don't be anxious about your life, we're like, that sounds really nice, but how do I get there? And so I wanna look at a passage this morning uh, that begins with this, um, this command. Therefore, do not be anxious about your life. And I think Jesus is going to speak to this issue. And uh, the passage begins, therefore, do not be anxious about your life. And often when we teach this passage, we teach what follows. Therefore, do not be anxious about your life. Rather, consider the lilies of the field or consider the birds of the air. But um, when you see the word therefore in your Bible, you always have to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Uh, and I mentioned that just to prove that I went to seminary. Um, you always have to ask, where, what's the therefore, therefore? Because oftentimes the therefore will point you to the passage that precedes it. It'll link it to the preceding thought. And so the idea is, if you understand this thought, 
then you can carry out this command. That if I get this, then I can do this. So Jesus isn't just saying, don't be anxious in a command form. He's giving us the capacity to carry out the command. So therefore, do not be anxious. So I want to read that passage together. So if you have a Bible, uh, open up to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, and we're going to start reading in verse 19. And we're going to lead up to this passage, which says, Therefore, do not be anxious about your life. So Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19, says this. It says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat, or what you will drink, or what you will wear. For the body is more than clothing, and life is more than food. Uh, let's pray and then jump into this passage together. Lord, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for an opportunity for us to just jump into your word. Lord, I pray that you would be active to speak in this moment. Lord, thank you um, that you speak to the issues of our day. That you are active to address the things that are causing pain, that are causing difficulty. You see the world that we live in, you see the chaos, and you speak directly into each one of our hearts. And so Lord, as Isaiah says, I just pray that this morning we would look and we would behold a king, the king of righteousness, and that the effect of righteousness would be peace, and the result of righteousness would be quietness and trust forever. And so, Lord, would you show us yourself this morning? And might this be an opportunity for us to sort of begin anew and begin fresh, that we would be peacemakers and that we would be filled with peace because we know the Prince of Peace. And so, Lord, would you do that in us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so we read this passage that speaks to anxiety. And uh, the passage begins with the word therefore, as we mentioned, but the, verse that, the verses that precede it seem, I don't know how it felt to you, but to me, on, upon first reading it, entirely disconnected. So he talks about the treasure of your heart, he talks about the eye is the lamp of the body, and then he says you cannot serve both God and money. What in the world did these three things have to do with anxiety? What is it about the treasure of your heart, the lamp of your eye, and the just making sure there wasn't a sprinkler going up behind me. Uh, the lamp of the eye and then the way that you serve or who you serve in this world. What do those things have to do with anxiety? Jesus seems to think that they're connected. Uh, well, to jump in, I, I want to just mention, I recently read a biography. I've been in a season of sort of reading biographies. I don't know if you guys get into biographies or not. I really haven't up until recently. But uh, one of my sort of heroes in life is uh, the author J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, who wrote uh, The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Most people know him through that. Uh, but what most people don't realize is that Tolkien wasn't an author uh, by trade. He was a professor. He was an Oxford Don. Uh, and one of the things that um, is intriguing to me about reading biography is you get a window into the subject's personal 
life. And so you get to learn all sorts of things about this individual. Uh, and you sort of learn their likes, their dislikes, their friendships, things that are going on in their world. Uh, I learned one thing that I didn't know before jumping in is that I knew that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and the great Christian apologist C.S. Lewis were buddies. What I didn't realize is that Tolkien actually led C.S. Lewis to Jesus. So uh, C.S. Lewis wrote in his journal, I have become a Christian and my talks with Tolkien had much to do with it. Uh, and C.S. Lewis was someone that kept a regular journal, so you can actually go back to the day that Tolkien and C.S. Lewis met, and he made a little note about it, which I thought was sort of interesting. And C.S. Lewis, the day he met J.R.R. Tolkien, said he is a smooth, pale, fluent little chap, and he said, no harm in him, only needs a smack or so, <laughs> which I just thought was a funny thing to write, and the true friendship began. Uh, you get a window into their personal life, but you also get a window into their creative process. And so I didn't realize that J.R.R. Tolkien started writing The Lord of the Rings without a plan. Uh, he didn't intend to. He didn't set out to. He wrote a book called The Hobbit because an idea came to him. He was a professor, had no interest in being an author, but it was wildly popular. Uh, popular beyond anyone's expectations, certainly the, pub the publishers. And so the publishers actually begged him, please write another story. And so sort of in response to their request to write another story, he just starts writing The Lord of the Rings. And, uh, and he doesn't really know where it's going. So if you're a fan of the movies and you tried to read the books and you gave up somewhere around Tom Bombadil, you are not alone. He almost gave up there himself. And the hobbits are sort of just wandering around and you're like, what is happening in this story? And he says, I didn't really know where the story was going until the hobbits got to Bree. He said, and then I became fascinated with this little trinket, this little gold ring. And he said, I became obsessed with it. And he said, the ring revealed the story to me. He said, I followed the ring to Mordor. And what's interesting about that is Tolkien's main character sort of shared this obsession with the ring. And if you watch, if you've ever seen those movies, how many of you, these came out like in 2003, how many of you have seen The Lord of the Rings? You're actually familiar with what I'm talking about. Okay, good. Um, so if you've ever seen those movies, you know that the main character, Frodo, sort of shares that obsession with the ring, right? And he's got this little thing of beauty and immense power, and he's holding on to it. And you watch that as, as the movies develop, you, you watch as he becomes increasingly obsessed with it, that he sort of holds it and he pets it. He calls it his precious, right? And, uh, and then in the end, for those of you who haven't seen it, major spoiler alert coming, he gets to the edge of Mount Doom, and the very thing that he and the fellowship set out to do was to destroy the ring. But his treasure became his obsession. And his obsession ended up mastering him. And he can't do it. He can't throw the ring into the fire. Why? Because his treasure became his obsession. And his obsession became his master. And Tolkien understood this deep human truth. And it's this. That what we treasure, we worship. And what we worship we obey. So that which has our hearts will draw our eyes and ultimately has our lives. What we treasure, we worship. And what we worship, we obey. That which we treasure will become our obsession, will become our master. What has our hearts, has our eyes, controls our lives. That's the truth that Tolkien was trying to communicate. And what's so fascinating about that is, this is exactly what Jesus was communicating. If you go back to the passage that we read this morning in Matthew chapter 6, you'll see that what he's talking about is the treasure of your heart, the obsession that draws our gaze, and then that which controls our lives, or the ultimate master of our world. Our treasure becomes our obsession, becomes our master. That which we treasure, we worship, and that which we worship, we obey. And this is not just a Christian truth. 
I believe this is a universal human truth. So whether or not you have a, a strong and robust relationship with God this morning, or if you're just exploring sort of spiritual things, or you're tuning in online just to see what the people in church are up to this morning, I don't think this is just a Christian sort of truth. I think this is a universal human truth. So there was an author by the name of David Foster Wallace, who's an atheist, and he said this at a college convocation. He said, here's something that's weird and also true. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. He said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. He said, and the compelling reason for choosing to worship God, and again, this is from an atheist, he said, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. He said, if you worship money and things, if, they were, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. He said, worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. He said, worship power you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out, and so on. And he said, look, the insidious thing is, these forms, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're inherently bad. Intellect, beauty, power, these are all inherently good things. He says, the insidious thing is that they're unconscious. They're sort of our default setting. And uh, the reality is that, is that everybody worships. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And it's important that we answer that question. Because the reality is what we treasure is what we worship. And what we worship will determine how we live. The location of our treasure will determine the quality of our worship. And that will determine the direction of our lives. And so there's this deep human truth that we're attempting to unearth this morning, and it's that the direction of your worship will determine the direction of your life. And so I want to jump into this together. Um, And so Matthew chapter 6, we're just going to go through this verse by verse. So Jesus starts off and he says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But rather, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this is a fascinating passage. It's a fascinating start to what we're looking at this morning. And he starts off and he's just being super straightforward. He says, do not store up treasures on earth. Rather, store up treasures in heaven. Why not store up treasures on earth? He says, because there's a possibility that they will be destroyed by moths and rust which I think is really interesting. The main form of currency in Jesus' day was precious metals and cloth. Those were the signs of wealth of his day. And what's so fascinating is he says, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth. Why? Because moths might get them, right? That's not a particularly scary thing. Like he doesn't, he's not like, because of the demogorgon, right? Like he, get, he says moths. He gives us a tiny little animal uh, that is, you know, an insect. Not lions, not an angry badger. A moth. He says something as small as a moth can destroy that which you hold most dear. He says the things that we store up on this earth are fleeting and they're um, temporary, right? He says because even if you are smart and you don't and you're 
wealth is not subject to being eaten through by moths or destroyed by rust. He says, a thief might break in and steal. So at any moment, they can disappear. He says, the treasures that we store up here on this earth are temporary and they're fleeting. So he says, don't store for yourself treasures on earth. Rather, store for yourself treasure in heaven because that is eternal and secure. The things that we store up in heaven will last forever. And so he says, be careful where you place your treasure. And so I recently read the book um, Treasure Island, and I'm not sure why. I just like story time. So I jumped back into uh, Treasure Island, and it's an amazing book. It's one of those that was written in like the 1700s and still holds up today. And I remembered the sort of main pieces of Treasure Island, because it's sort of um, a piece of popular a fiction that sort of just made its way into popular culture, into our imagination. So we remember like Long John Silver, we remember X Marks the Spot, we remember Treasure Island. Uh, but what I'd forgotten is that, that that book starts off with a pirate showing up onto the scene with a treasure chest, and he shows up to this little inn that's run by a single mother and her child, and he's got this treasure chest, and he's ill. And the book starts off, and he sort of moves his way into this inn. He's sort of creating terror for the people that are inside. And shortly into the beginning of the book, he gets marked with the black spot. I don't know if you remember that, but the black spot was like you had a hit on your life. So he knew there are people coming, and their intention is to kill him. And so he's got to run. The natural response would be to flee. And yet, he's gotten ill, and so he can't leave and bring this treasure chest with him. He's too weak to lift it and to carry it at this point. And what ends up happening is he's so tethered to the contents of that box that the book starts off with him dying nearly on top of it. Uh, he is so tethered, he is so attached to the treasure that even at the cost of his life, he can't leave it. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to us this morning, is he's saying, what are you so tethered to? What are you so um, value that you can't leave it no matter what? He says, be careful. What's in that box? Is it worth your life? Is it temporary or is it eternal? Is it secure or is it fleeting? He says, don't store it for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroyed, do store up for yourself treasures in heaven because that is eternal and secure. And so Jesus is trying to teach us at the beginning of this passage that the location of our treasure will determine the direction of our lives. That which we treasure, we worship. Our treasure will become our obsession. That which has our hearts will draw our gaze. And that's where Jesus goes next. And in the next verse, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And that's a pretty cryptic sentence, right? Like, it would be hard to repeat that back to me just hearing it once. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If the eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is not healthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great then is that darkness? And what's Jesus saying there? What's he trying to communicate? It's a bit cryptic, but I think what he's saying is the eye is sort of the source. And so that which you take in will determine the content of your character. He says, if you take in light, you will become light. If you take in darkness, you will become darkness. And so be careful, little eyes, what you see. That's basically what Jesus is saying. But then he says that statement at the end, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What does that mean? I think he's saying if you're taking in that which is meant to fill you with light and with life, if that which you're taking in that's meant to fill you with light is darkness, how great and final and terrible 
is that darkness. It would be like saying if the food that you eat is poison, how final and how terrible and how great is that poison. Poison is bad over there, but it's deadly when you ingest it. And so he said, don't take in darkness. Be careful, pay attention to what you're looking at. Because if you pay attention long enough to the things that attract your gaze, if you pay close attention to what am I looking at day in and day out, as I scroll through Instagram or Facebook or social media, as I turn on the TV, the first thing that I grab in the morning, he's saying pay attention to what you're looking at. Is what you're looking at light? Or is what you're looking at darkness? Because there are deep implications here. And so he says, what are you looking at? What draws your gauge? And that's a true question. And I'd encourage you to just reflect on that. What is the thing that the subconscious of my mind, the natural, uh, unconscious sort of movement, where do I go? What am I looking at? But then I think Jesus is saying, not just what are you looking at, don't just pay attention to what you're looking at, but pay attention to the way that you're perceiving the things that you're looking at. Are you looking at light or are you looking at darkness? So when you do open Instagram or you do read the news or you do behold that other political figure or you look out into the world, are you looking out and are you perceiving light or are you perceiving darkness? Are you seeing people to be used, to be mocked, are you seeing financial resources to sort of fill your coffers? Are you seeing, or are you looking out and you're seeing people who are made in the image of God, uh, who are objects of his love and his compassion? He says, don't just, look, don't, pay, don't just pay attention to what you're looking at, but pay attention to the way that you're perceiving the things that you're looking at. Are you looking at light or are you looking at darkness? Even when you walk into a space like this, what are you what do you see? Is this just transactional or interactional? Or are you seeing in this moment, even now, heaven touching earth and God speaking to humanity? Are you looking at light? Or are you looking at darkness? And Jesus is trying to teach us. He says, pay attention to the treasures of your heart. Because in the passage, in the verse just before this, he says, don't store for yourself treasures on earth. Do store it for yourself. I mean, do store it for yourself treasures in heaven. And then something interesting ha- happens, he says, because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he goes from speaking in the second person plural, like just general sort of platitudes. Don't store for yourself treasures here. Do store for yourself treasures here. But then he shifts to the singular. And he makes it really personal. And he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. And where your treasure is, your heart will be there also. And he says, for each of us listening, the location of your treasure will determine the direction of your life. And if you really want to know what is my treasure, if you really want to know what you value above all else, pay attention to the things that you're looking at, right? Pay attention to the way that you're perceiving the world because the treasures of our heart will determine the direction of our gaze, right? Uh, We naturally look at the things that we treasure. And so Jesus is trying to teach us, pay attention to what you're treasuring. Is it earthly or is it eternal? Is it light or is it darkness? And then Jesus is going to switch metaphors. And he's going to move from a light and darkness metaphor um, to a servant and master metaphor. And and each of these are sort of increasing in severity. Um, And so he finishes and he says, So no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
You cannot serve both God and money. And, uh, and I think this is sort of a fascinating uh, conclusion to this. And Jesus is trying to say that our gaze is naturally drawn to the things that we treasure. He's asking us, are we looking at that which is eternal? Are we looking at that which is temporary? Are we taking in light? Or are we taking in darkness? Because what we treasure, we worship. And what we worship, we obey. And so he ends this by saying, you cannot serve both God and mammon. And some of your translations might say God and money, but a more accurate translation would be mammon. It was sort of a Semitic term for just the things of this world or our earthly possessions. And he's saying you can't be both a servant of God and a servant of the things of this world. You've got to choose one. You can't be both. Because if you're looking at light and darkness, eventually you'll go cross-eyed. You've got to pick a singular devotion to am I serving God or am I serving this world? And, um, and as I was thinking about this one, how we can't serve both, um, I was just thinking about this idea that God is looking for people of integrity. He's looking for whole people, not people who are divided. I'm serving the world a little bit here, and I'm serving God a little bit here. He's saying, I'm looking for singular devotion. And the image that kept coming to my mind was the movie uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. I'm not sure if you guys have seen Mrs. Doubtfire. Very old Robin Williams movie. Show of hands again. How many of you have seen Mrs. Doubtfire? Okay, quite a few of you. Uh, that was an enormously important movie. In my childhood, I loved Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, I had no idea how much cross-dressing influenced me as, as a child. Uh, this Robin Williams, if you've never seen the movie, uh, he, is, he loses access to getting to see his kids, so he dresses up as a maid, uh, and he goes sort of back into their world, and he uh, enters into the world not as um, himself, Daniel Hillard, but he enters into their world as Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, and if you remember that movie, there's this moment, there's this scene sort of at the end of the movie where he's having dinner with his family as himself, as Daniel Hillard, and then he's having, or, or, as, with a boss as Daniel Hillard, and then he's having dinner with his family as Mrs. Doubtfire. And he has to keep running back and forth and changing in the bathroom. And he's Daniel Hillard here in one moment, and then he's Mrs. Doubtfire here in the other. And he's, one moment he's the, you know, f funny sort of hairy Daniel Hillard, and the other moment he's this cheeky British Mrs. Doubtfire uh, made woman, and he's running back and forth. And then eventually he shows up at the wrong table and the wrong outfit, right? And I think that's a, an important illustration because that's how ma so many of us are frantically trying to live our lives. That we're a little bit this way here and we're a little bit that way here and I'm going to be a servant of God in this moment but that I'm going to care tremendously about this in this moment and I'm sort of running back and forth and I think what Jesus is trying to tell us is eventually you're going to show up at the wrong table with your fat suit on, right? Uh, he's looking for singular devotion. Uh, he wants people of integrity, not those of us who are sort of divided in two different directions. Because the reality is what we treasure, we obsess over. And what we obsess over becomes our ultimate master. And I think for so many of us who are dealing with anxiety, and, we're, and we want to be servants of God, and we want to be people who really follow God and feel and experience peace, but then we get to this place where we're either failing over and over again with some particular issue, or we're feeling overwhelmed and stressed out by the world, and, and we don't understand why we can't beat this at the level of obedience. I think what Jesus is trying to teach us is, you're starting at the wrong point. We can't begin with the level of obedience. It doesn't start with the actions of our hands. It starts two steps back. And so I think this is good news and bad news. It's good news because now we can have an accurate diagnosis. And so if we look at our behavior and what we're doing, then we can get a window into what led me to this behavior and what are the things that I've been looking at? What are the things that I've been obsessing over? And then we can take a step back from there and say, what's the treasure of my heart that led to this obsession? And it's here at the level of the ultimate treasure of my heart that I can really begin to do work 
that will eventually affect how I live. And I think what Jesus is trying to teach us is, for so many of us, we have these treasures of our heart that are good things inherently in themselves, but make really bad gods. They make bad masters. And we feel insecure because we are. Because we've put our ultimate hope, our ultimate treasure, our ultimate value in that which cannot hold us. And so if we put our ultimate hope in money, or things, or possessions, the search for that will pull us higher and higher until we realize that it can't hold our weight and the fall can be perilous. Right? And this is what David Foster Wallace was saying at the beginning of this, that if we worship appearance or looks or sexual allure, he says, we'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the grave, that that, that is fleeting. And if we worship success, then every failure will feel like a death. If we worship power, then every time it feels like it's pulled away from us, our whole world will go into a tailspin and we won't know how to live. And there's this passage um, in the book of Luke where Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field. And he's like, he says it's like a man was just walking through a field and he sort of trips and he looks and he realizes that there is a treasure of immeasurable wealth in this field. And his response is he goes and he sells everything he has so that he can buy the field. And when he buys the field, he gets the treasure and the treasure comes free. And yet it, he sold everything to get the thing that was of infinitely more worth. And I think what Jesus is saying is that for so many of us, we feel sort of our worlds going into a tailspin when something is challenged. And it may be different for every one of us, but we feel like the whole world is upside down and backwards and we don't know how to handle it. And Jesus, I think, is trying to teach us you were supposed to have sold your ultimate allegiance to that a long time ago and recognize him as the true and the ultimate treasure. And so it's a good thing that we can get here because now we can begin to do real work. We can have an accurate diagnosis. This is the thing that I ultimately treasure. I need to replace that with Jesus. But it's a bad thing because ultimately, we like what we like, right? And we can't change our hearts. I can't just all of a sudden stop liking something and start liking something else. And so I think that the final thing that I want to say is, how do you replace a treasure from the human heart? How do you replace a treasure from the human heart? I think the only way to do that is to replace it with a more valuable treasure. How do you replace a beautiful thing in the human heart? You replace it with a more beautiful thing. And so, Romeo and Juliet. I don't know if you remember the beginning of Romeo and Juliet, but Romeo is obsessed with somebody not named Juliet. Does anyone remember the beginning of Romeo and Juliet? Right? He's obsessed with this woman named Rosalind, right? And he's hanging out with Benfolio and the boys, and he's just pining over Rosalind. And he says, one fairer than my love, the world's ne'er seen since worlds began. And he is obsessed with Rosalind until he meets Juliet, right? And he has this interaction with Juliet, and he says, um, uh, you know, all of a sudden, everything in his world changes, and he's, you know, that, that's the moment when he meets Juliet and he says, what light through yonder window breaks. He says, it is the east and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon that is already sick and pale with grief. For thou, her maid, are far more fair than she. And he has forgotten all about Rosalind, right? Because he met the more beautiful treasure. 
And for so many of us, if we want to live lives that are full of peace, full of ease, full of trust, we need to begin to realize that there are lesser treasures in this world that are not bad in and of themselves, but they make bad gods. And we need to be introduced to the true ultimate treasure of the universe. And it's only there when we can fixate on him day in and day out and go through this exercise of that which is capturing my mind, capturing my attention, capturing my obsession that's leading to these anxieties and these behaviors that I don't like in myself and I can't seem to beat at the level of behavior. I need to take two steps back and go, what am I obsessing over? What is the ultimate treasure? And it's in that place that we say, oh God, show me yourself. Show me your face. Show me your value. Show me your worth. Because he is the only true treasure of the universe that can be a good master. And it's only our trust in him and the trust in the, the strength of his hands and the love of his heart that will make us feel secure in this world. This is how we were wired. And so and when we begin to see him as a treasure that is a worthy obsession that becomes a capable master, it's only then that we can begin to feel the cares of the world roll off our shoulders and the ease of Jesus fill our hearts. So I hope that makes sense to you this morning and uh, I hope that it becomes sort of a daily practice and it's a nice thing to sort of think about and I think it shows the beauty and the wisdom of this word that Jesus really understands how we're wired and the things that get us and the things that lead us down certain paths that we may not want to go down and our inability to sort of change ourselves at the level of obedience but the reality is, is as nice as it may sound without a daily practice of recognizing what am I looking at what am I obsessing over? What is the ultimate treasure of my heart? This will be useless to us. And so this has got to be a going into the word, a seeking of the face of God, a daily reorientation of our affections and the deep treasures of our hearts. And so I pray that that will be true of us as a people, as a congregation, and as a church. So let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for this moment. Thank you that you speak to the deep places of our hearts. Lord, thank you that your word is powerful. Thank you that your word is beautiful. And thank you that it has the capacity to change human hearts. Lord, thank you for the people in this room. Thank you um, that you speak to us in this place. And God, I do pray that we would be people that um, daily dive into your word. That we would be people who seek you to know you. And in the process, that we would become more like you. God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us as the ultimate treasure of the universe. Lord, I pray that as we go into a quiet place in our home or we go and we sit by a river or a lake or as we take a walk around the neighborhood and we seek you, God, I pray that you would be available for the finding and that as we see you and as we behold your face, we would see you as the ultimate treasure of the universe and that our affections would be stirred for you, God, and that the obsessions of our heart would be you, God, and that the worship of our lives would be aimed at the only true object of that worship. And then we would begin to see you as in control, capable, strong, loving, and we would have this thought that if my life is in his hands, I'm going to be okay. And he's the only master of the universe that's capable of leading me without destroying me. And so God, we just, we reorient our affections towards you today. And I pray that this would lead to new habits in our lives where we would seek you 
and we would feel the, the, the peace of the Prince of Peace wash over us day in and day out. May that be true of us, God, um, and we pray for more of you, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.